Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. It's a very special episode today, an interview conducted by my co-host Chris Berg with the famous libertarian economist Russ Roberts of Econ Talk fame and also Professor Mike Munger from Duke University, who amongst other things has run for Governor of North Carolina on the Libertarian Party ticket. He's got a fascinating conversation with Chris about that in the interview you're about to watch. The interview was conducted as part of the recent uh, Friedman Conference hosted by the Australian Taxpayers Alliance and the Australian Libertarian Society. So if you if you missed out on that 24-hour extravaganza, this was one of the, uh, the best interviews, best encounters to come out of that. And Chris did a great job. Of course, they talk about the pandemic. They talk about libertarianism. They talk about freedom. Is this the apotheosis of the nanny state or is it the start of its demise as we see that these regulations being highlighted are actually dragging us down? And maybe this is, as one of the guests puts it, the golden age of libertarian scepticism. We can only hope... Uh, I'll be passing over to the conference, uh, the interview in a moment, but uh, don't forget that Looking Forward is a product of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join, donate, or just get around our voluminous and brilliant research. Um, I'll be back with you at the end of the program, but uh, right now I'll just hand over to Chris for his interview with the great Russ Roberts and the great Mike Munger. My name is Chris Berg. I'm the co-director of the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub and host of Looking Forward, a weekly podcast on politics and culture with the Institute of Public Affairs. For this session, though, I'm really excited that I'm joined by the great Russ Roberts. Uh, Russ Roberts, as many of you will know, is the John and Jean Denault Research Fellow at the Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Russ is most famous and most admired, of course, for hosting the weekly podcast EconTalk, which is itself hosted by the Library of Economics of Liberty. It's now approaching its 15th year, which is horrifying as much to me as it is to him, no doubt. Um, uh, he's the author of a number of books, including his most recent Gambling with Other People's Money, but unusually and quite cool. Russ writes books in very strange genres for an economist. He's written three novels by my count, and he's written my favorite self-help book, um, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life. Russ, welcome to the Friedman Conference. Thank you, Chris. Great to be with you. Um, so I thought today what we would do is we'd talk through uh, the three big issues um, of our time, uh, the big issues of 2020 and, and this decade. So that's pandemics, populism, and technological change. I might start though with pandemics, if that's okay. So, sure. I mean, so so I'm I'm doing this from Victoria. Um, uh, we're going back down into lockdown. I don't know what the situation is with you. It, during this pandemic, we've just seen a massive increase in state activity in Victoria. We've actually seen the state barricade people literally in their homes. We've seen civil society respond in a really positive way, and in some cases, we've seen deregulation. Um, I think it's meant that a lot of people are. Uh, are, are rethinking some of their understandings about the economy and society. But, but I, I just want to ask you, the, on the broadest point, what do you feel like you understand better since the pandemic started that you might not have understood beforehand? Uh, well, that's not a very cheerful thing. The thing I understand better is <clears throat> how partisan and tribal American politics has become. Uh, I think this is epitomized by the fact that 
wearing a mask uh, out and about in the middle of a pandemic is now a partisan issue in the United States. It blows my mind. And of course, it's not just, well, I don't know if it's a good idea or eh, it's probably a good idea. It's more like if you wear a mask, you're you're an idiot. And if you don't wear a mask, you're a moron and you're an American on either side. And I have the right to go into a store without a mask. And I have the right to tackle you if you come into the store without, I mean, it's just, it's a pitiful uh, litmus test for what has um, happened to our our political culture in the United States. So that's one of the things I've learned. Um, uh, What else have I learned? I learned that, you know, I think the a lot of what has happened in the aftermath of the pandemic and its course being run here in the United States, at least, is how relatively unimportant some of the things are that we thought were so crucial. Now, the government locked down in the United States very late, uh, third week in March. Uh, but most of the private sector locked down the second week of March because mm-hmm. we, as individuals and as organizations, part of that civil society you alluded to, said, I don't think this is a good idea. So, you know, at the one end extreme, you have China, which if you come out of your apartment uh, during quarantine, you probably are arrested and sent to the gulag. Uh, And at the other end, we have Sweden that said, you know, you're grownups. Why don't you take the caution that you think is appropriate for your situation? And I think a lot of people have learned the wrong lesson from these. This is the the anti question, the question you didn't ask. What are things people learned that's wrong? And one of the things I think they learned that's wrong is that they've come to believe that somehow the government needs to take charge of this every time. In China, they did take charge and they've done a very good job, it appears, although we don't really know because we don't know if the data are correct and true. But in China, you know, they don't have a lot of liberty. So it's kind of a brutal truth that if you live in a totalitarian state, and they're not quite a totalitarian state, but they have elements of totalitarianism. They can do a lot of things that can't be done elsewhere. That's nothing new. But what to me is more interesting is the Swedish case and other countries where people were not mandated to do X, Y, and Z from above. And Sweden's had a relatively high death rate relative to its Scandinavian neighbors, but not particularly high relative to its other Western European neighbors. And we don't know whether that's due to the fact that they have a very different elderly population. They lost a lot of people tragically in the beginning in nursing homes. Uh, we don't know what the long-term impact of this is gonna be in terms of immunity and so on. So I, 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 one of the things I've learned is how little I know. I went into a last part of the rambling answer to your very good question. No, please. You know, I started obsessively reading and following the data on this, thinking I'll, I'll just, I've gotta figure this out. And of course I haven't figured it out. We're having this very interesting uh, second wave of, in, of cases here in the United States, a little bit in Australia and other countries having the same uh, issue of, of a, rec- a recurrence of the virus, but the death rate's dramatically lower. So the whole thing is extremely complicated. So one of the things I've learned is that uh, a principle that you know Nassim Taleb talks about that you want to avoid ruin. I'm 65 years old. I, I'm in good health otherwise, thank God, but being careful is probably a good idea for me. Uh, I don't want to take a chance and I'm lucky I can still lead a lot of my life without going out a lot. And if I do go out, I wear a mask. So I think um, we've learned a lot about, I think the things we don't know. And also I think the challenges we'll face the next time this happens. Uh, 
how we respond to this coming out of it and helping the people who've suffered and not just the ones who've died, of course, their families, but just the people who've lost their jobs is going to be another challenge that I'm not so optimistic we'll, we'll handle so well here in the United States. Yeah. It strikes me that one of the great themes of econ talk as you've evolved it over the last decade and a half is, is that, that knowledge problem, which obviously um, uh, you're very strongly inspired by Friedrich Hayek's idea yeah. of the knowledge challenge, but just a yeah. general, a, a more general philosophical skepticism about what we, what we can know, which leads to a modesty about what we should do, which, which I think I share. Um, but isn't this a really hard time to have that skepticism? Not with us as private citizens, but let's say that we are a government um, or, you know, we're the premier or the president or the prime minister of, of a national jurisdiction. You have to make those decisions, right? And um, even if we decide that the Chinese model of absolute lockdown was superior or inferior to the Swedish model, um, it's sort of hard to be able to suggest that any particular political community had better information and made the right decision anyway. Yeah. How, should we, how should we think of, through that really awful challenge? So a lot of, and, and I, you know, we have to be realistic. It's easy for us to take cheap shots at leaders who made mistakes. We weren't in the driver's seat. It's a lot of responsibility. Horrible, horrible challenge, tough situation. A lot of mistakes are made by very well-intentioned people. Uh, but I think I think if we think about what are the mistakes we made and the things we want to avoid doing the next time, uh, they're kind they're interesting for this question of both the knowledge problem and the question of the appropriate role for government in, in our lives. So one of the things the government did um, really badly here in the United States is they made it hard to get a test approved by the F Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, which is the approving of of those kind of medical issues, medical devices. It's a terrible, terrible mistake. Um, would it be very valuable to know whether you have the illness, whether you have the virus, whether other people have it, whether you could go to work safely or not, whether you can go out or not with your friends. So in the beginning, of course, we didn't have a test, but very quickly, there were all kinds of tests proliferating and the government didn't make that easy. They made it hard. That is bad. Second thing they did is they there was a shortage of what's called PPE, personal protective equipment, gowns, masks, um, shields, uh, gloves. And it, to me, it was pretty obvious that you want to let um, the profit law system go into action and, and create, get rid of that shortage. But we didn't. We confiscated here in the United States. We confiscated supplies because we were afraid people had paid too much for them. Oh, well, that's a horrible thing. We're supposed to be capitalists, but it's weird. We have price gouging laws so that can't make an extra profit. Think about this. Doctors are dying. It's, it's a horrible tragedy. This is an intellectual, this is not an intellectual debate about whether, you know, prices are good or not. It's a, it's a real debate about whether prices are good, where human lives were at stake. And because the government did not allow suppliers to make huge profit, which is what they should have done, giving them an incentive to acquire a lot of machinery to make a lot more masks and toilet paper and paper towels and other things too, tuna, <coughs> the basics. Because they didn't do that, there were shortages. Of, you know, people said, oh, it's, it's the, U the US government's messed this up. If they'd been more organized, if they'd been more efficient, we wouldn't have had these shortages. Well, the more socialist countries that centralized their supply of masks also had shortages. And they also had doctors that died. So it would have been a great idea to try an alternative 
called Unleashing the Incentives and Creativity of the Private Sector. And that happened to some extent, but it all had to be sort of roundabout and sneaking around and avoiding the normal ways we would have done to, to solve these problems. So I think that was a, a terrible mistake. And then the third thing, which I, I you know, this mask question, I, we didn't, I get debates on Twitter with people who say, well, we just don't have any data on whether masks work. And my answer to that is, yeah, we don't have any data. It's not my joke, somebody else's joke. We don't have any data on whether it's uh, dangerous to jump from an airplane at 30,000 feet without a parachute. Because we haven't There's tested no it enough. No. <laughs> never tested it. It's never been clinically, there's no clinical trials. There's no random, random, randomized control trials on whether it's a you know, control group who wore one and a, I mean, who didn't have one and one who did. I, I would be happy to but, take the placebo in that, for instance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which placebo would that be? <laughs> the, the not jumping. <laughs> yes, the not jumping group. Well, I'm thinking about the jumping with a parachute and jumping without. <laughs> but the, the, the point is, is that is that we understand gravity. That's science. I know, I know that we don't have any peer-reviewed journal articles on whether wearing a parachute. That is not the only way we understand how the world works. And similarly, we don't have a lot of peer-reviewed journal articles on mask wearing, but when you have a disease that's spread through the air, through people's faces, is it, why is it not scientific to cover your face? I mean, do you really need to have a 30,000 person test of whether this is a good idea? So I think it was a terrible uh, leadership failure on the part of of uh, President Trump, not is, to just show up wearing a mask. I don't know why he didn't do it, is, uh, but it I think that, it would have saved some lives. Is is the problem there um, then that we strongly confuse public mandates and private um, uh, private views? So it, it is very possible to have a world where the government does not require masks, but right. there's almost a hundred percent mask wearing because right. individuals privately choose to do so. And, yeah. and it strikes me in, in my own life and in the life of colleagues and friends, there's, there's the rule, right? Right now it's illegal for me to go outside to do certain things, but I might make decisions on top of that, that prevent me from that, that, that prevent me from doing other stuff. And I think in Australia, I, I, I when we started removing the restrictions, <laughs> it was a bit scary for a lot of people because it meant that the responsibility for making their choices was on them, that the yeah. risk was their own. Great point. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think, I mean, I've, this has bothered me for a long time. I, the idea that if, if we didn't uh, make it illegal to murder people, then it would be okay. People would say, oh, I guess it's okay. Of course it's not okay. Do you really think the laws against murder are what prevent most people from murdering other people? No, it is, they're not. They might prevent some people. They do. They do allow the prosecution of people who violate that very human norm. But the, you know, the drug war is the same issue. The idea that somehow, uh, if we make drugs legal, then it's we're saying it's okay to take drugs. No, we're not. We're just saying we're not going to use the apparatus of the police and the FBI in America and the federal government to to restrict the supply and put people in jail who pursue a a, a pleasure that they that they enjoy. I'm not a drug user. I don't like it. But the idea that somehow that it encourages it if we make it if we don't make it illegal is a terrible, terrible philosophical lesson for an educated adult population. Now, parents and children, parenting is different. 
right? When your parents, when your kids are running around, you don't want them running. You don't want to say, I won't tell them to run into traffic. They should learn that themselves. No, bad idea. But you don't want to be treated as a child when you're an adult. And for the government to act in loco, act in loco parentis, to treat us as children and to assume that we can't take care of ourselves is, is the beginning of a very unhealthy relationship between the state and, and the individual. And um, we're on that slippery slope a little bit right now. And it, and it goes a bit further, just to amplify it. It's, it murder, we sort, of, we sort of know the consequences of murder. We, we yeah. know to some degree the consequences of drug users drug use. Yeah. Um, we don't know about the consequences of mask wearing. I, I'm with you. I think it's a, a sensible and a rational choice, particularly um, if you're in a higher risk group. But we, uh, there's so much about this environment that has only occurred in the last four months that we don't have the evidence for. I mean, I know, I know that I'm going to spend the rest of my life analyzing, thinking about the lessons of the pandemic. We, we are, the, this is our life now. This is, this is the rest of our career. Um, in an environment where there's such an enormous knowledge problem, the question isn't should the government do this? It's should the, should the private sector be allowed to make that assessment themselves? Yeah. I'll tell you an interesting story. I was out hiking uh, on Sunday in a, a park near, near my house. And uh, there are parts where the trail was fairly narrow. And um, about, I don't know, a quarter or a third of people were wearing masks. Now we're outside, right? And at one point I was getting annoyed. I'm 65. I'm a little bit more at risk than the average person hiking. I'm, one of, I'm not the oldest person on the trail, but I'm not. I'm above the median. And I'm getting a little bit frustrated that so many people are not wearing masks. And my wife said, like, well, then you shouldn't go hiking because that is the alternative way to avoid, if you are at risk, to avoid exposure. And she's right. The right thing to do is either don't go hiking, wear two masks, or when you see someone coming who's not wearing a mask, step aside more than you would if they were both, you're both wearing a mask. It, that it, the idea that somehow they are obligated to wear a mask. Now that could be, become a cultural norm, but I don't want it to be a government norm. I don't want the government to enforce mask wearing. I'd like it to emerge. And the fact that it is considered somehow um, un-American or um, a violation of my rights if if it's if I'm morally encouraged to wear a mask is a bizarre idea. It's like, you know. A, anyway, it, it's um, difficult time. But as you point out, these are issues that we're going to be grappling with. I think, unfortunately, for a while, not just at this pandemic, but when the next one comes along, assuming there is a next one, and most people think there will be a next one. Yeah. Um, so, uh, look, I'd like to stick a bit on this, and so we've we've both taken a bit of sure. the, the liberty focus approach but but you're yeah. you're a career economist um uh, i'm i'm an economist myself as well um in australia at least there's been this argument by a lot in the economics community that that there isn't really a clear role for economists in making in informing these policy decisions and governments mm. have supported that framework as well so for instance when the lockdown was announced in victoria this week um the the premier announced that uh, you know, I have been advised by the public health um, office yeah. lockdown, so I am locking down. 
What, what is the role for a social scientist in navigating those sorts of choices? Because we, I know nothing about epidemiology. I mean, I've, like you, I've been reading as much as I can, but, but it's, um, uh, it, it, it's hard for me to navigate as a... Um, I, I got good and bad news for you, Chris. Yep. <laughs> Epidemiologists don't know much about epidemiology. <laughs> that, that, that's part of the problem. And that sounds like a cheap shot and a stupid, snarky thing to say. But epidemiology as practiced in the academic world is, is finding correlations between various foods and, and health outcomes mm-hmm. measured retrospectively on diet. And, you know, so as a ha- half the studies in epidemiology say that alcohol kills you and the other half say it's going to extend your life. And, uh, or they, you know, they ask people how much caffeine they drank during their lifetime and the ones forgetting that they can't control for everything else. Uh, and they decide that caffeine is either good for you or bad for you. And of course their studies, on both sides and the latest one makes the front page of the New York times and it should be um, ignored actually, as, as some have started to suggest, I think the point you're making though, is a really deep and appropriate thing to struggle with. Um, doctors are not really good at trade-offs. Economists are good at trade-offs. They understand there often are trade-offs. Uh, and so I, my issue with this, the thing that's bothered me the most is that, uh, we did lock down in the United States somewhat. We closed bars, we closed restaurants, we closed music con- concerts, venues, etc. cetera. Uh, a lot of people did it voluntarily, but the government also did a, a good chunk of it. And certainly the government encouraged it. Certainly the public health officials encouraged it. They said your risk of dying, they had the, the, the death risk you know, is, is not trivial for older people. It seems to be somewhat small for younger people. But they didn't make that distinction. They also, by the way, said, don't don't wear a mask because <laughs> we didn't even talk about this because we might need it for the doctor. So we're going to pretend that they don't work. So they encouraged a bunch of people to think that they, sh- they shouldn't wear a mask, but they probably should have and further degraded the, rep- the reputation of their organization, the Center for Disease Control here in the United States or the World Health Organization internationally. That's a whole other issue. Very, very depressing. But the point I want to make is that out of a combination of fear and lockdown, a lot of economic activity just stopped. Uh, people in the entertainment industry, people in the food industry, people in the travel industry, all those people lost their jobs or at least were put on hold. The government did some things to try to soften the blow. But a lot of people lost their restaurants, their, their, their coffee shops, the things that were part of their dreams. Who's that? So, and, Russ, to, sorry <laughs> to interrupt, but um, uh, do you want to finish that thought and I'll introduce our next yeah. guest? <laughs> yes, sure. So this, this lockdown came along, and, or this government combination with private choices, and everybody in the health industry, in the public health sector, sector and all the epidemiologists said, this is not a choice. It's a matter of life and death. We have to not go out. And I thought, well, you know, life and death's not the only thing. It, last time I looked, everybody dies. I mean, that just, you know, it's just, and, and how you live and how long you live are relevant, but those are two different things, right? How long you live and, and how you live. So you're telling me that I should live my life to maximize how long I live? That's what you're telling me. And that's a doctor's perspective. You know, it reminds me of a friend of mine, he's riding a motorcycle, gets in an accident, breaks his legs in the emergency room. And the doctor's fixing it. He's an economist, by the way. And the doctor puts his leg in a 
cast and says, well, I hope you learned your lesson. He says, well, what lesson is that? He goes, hope you'll never get on that motorcycle again. He says, as soon as I get this cast off, I'm getting on that motorcycle again. And to the doctor, that's like lunacy. To an economist, like, well, of course, there's trade-offs. You take risks if you think it's worth it. So the idea that somehow we could plunge tens of millions of people into economic despair, take away their dignity, take away their pride, but it doesn't matter as long as we're saving lives. I, that's a weird calculus. That's not the only thing that matters. And I, I don't know whether it was the right decision or not. As I said, a lot of it, I think, was voluntary anyway. and would have happened through personal choice. But this idea that there's no trade-off there, that there's no cost. You know what people argued? They argued, well, I guess you're right, because sometimes when the economy turns down, there are a lot of suicides. Well, that's not the only thing that matters. If your kid doesn't go to school for a year and a half, you're poor, and you can't hold your head up, and you have no dignity, and your kid falls behind and is going is to struggle already in a bad school, that's not irrelevant. That's, that's a, you you got to take that into account in some way. And so I think the role for economists in this crisis has been greatly undervalued, although some economists don't understand trade-offs either. But I, I think the idea that somehow, because this is a health issue, only health people should make the decisions is nuts and really bad public policy. I'm going to close and I'll let Mike Munger join us. Uh, I'm going to close with another quote from uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He says, you know, when you go to the casino and you're trying to figure out how to, how to gamble, you don't ask the carpenter who built the roulette wheel how to play roulette. You might argue, well, but he built it. He'd know more about it than anybody. No, actually, he doesn't. And so the question of whether epidemiologists and health officials understand trade-offs, risk, probability, uncertainty, fat-tailed events, uh, maybe not so much. So you probably want to get a wide range of voices in on these kind of decisions. And I think we failed to do that in a lot of cases. No, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, thank you, Russ. Mike. Um, Mike Munger, thank you so much for joining us. We're doing some live producing as it is. Um, I'm really excited to welcome you to the Friedman Conference, Mike. For the benefit of the audience, um, uh, Mike Munger is the professor of, a polit professor of political science, economics, and public policy at Duke University. Mike is a very powerful communicator on economic ideas and how they relate to liberty. Russ, I think he's the most frequently interviewed guest on Econ Talk or top. Yeah, by a little bit. By he's, a little we've had se we've had 750 episodes, and I think he's been on. I, was it 37 times, Mike? Uh, that's like saying that Ed McMahon was the most frequent guest on the Tonight Show. <laughs> yeah. Well, the second oh, oh, most you're, frequent. You're correct, sir. <laughs> the second most frequent guest, I think, is at 15 or 13 appearances. Mike is. I, I told Mike yesterday we actually taped an episode. Mike will retire as will I with Mike being the all-time econ talk guest his record is unreachable just just astounding um so Mike um it was a libertarian candidate for a governor of North Carolina in 2008 um he's the author of a number of books his most recent one is Tomorrow 3.0 about how digital technology is reshaping the economy but he has told me now that he's got a forthcoming book which is really exciting um, called Platforms, Perils and Promise to be published with the uh, UK think tank, the Institute of Economic Affairs, which explores the economic and political implications of platform businesses like Uber, Facebook, Amazon, and so forth. So Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for doing it. <laughs> no, no, no worries. So um, Russ and I have been talking about the pandemic and particularly talking about the 
trade-offs, the costs and consequences of it. Um, and we will move on to the other two topics that I want to talk about, populism and technological change. But just very briefly, how do you think about the, the way that policymakers have treated this as a cost-benefit challenge? Have they, so they've made some really substantial choices around locking us down, severely restricting our liberties, with some really obvious benefits, or at least uh, benefits as they said on the box, which is saving lives. How, I, I don't know whether you can answer the question of was the cost benefit analysis worth it or was the cost greater or worse than the lower than the benefits, but how would you start thinking about that, that question? Um, you know, well, was it worth it? In a way it's unfair to, <laughs> we have a little more information now than they had at the outset. And it appears that we made not one, but two mistakes. Um, we were pretty open for quite a while when even a small attempt to mitigate might have made a difference. And then once it became clear that there was actually a problem, we overreacted and locked everything down completely. So it, I, would, I would say, and this is with the benefit of hindsight, but I would say with the benefit of hindsight, there were two strategies available. One of them was suppression and the other was mitigation. And suppression is difficult in a large country like the United States. South Korea managed to do it. They're small and populous. Um, and what they did was they found, South Korea and the United States both had their first case on January 20th. The reaction of South Korea was immediately to enlist private sector labs whom they licensed on day one to perform tests. And then they started doing contact tracing. And they were able to suppress to the point where there were there are very few cases in South, South Korea total. So if you were going to suppress, you had to do it from day one. An alternative that might have worked was something closer to Sweden, which was to mitigate. And that is, well, use, be sensible, and I'm, I don't mean to be racist, but telling Swedish people to stay far apart, you don't have to do that. They're, they're, that's just what <laughs> Swedish people do. They're, 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 they, they are they naturally to, socially distanced. That's like, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, well, a lot of people from the Midwest have that same sort of cultural feeling that don't be hugging me. We, I don't know you well enough. And so we're, we're going to stay apart. And so for a number of reasons, Sweden tried mitigation from the outset. And you could say, some people have said Sweden as a result had more cases than they needed, but Sweden's economy was never shut down. So what the United States did was first, we failed to mitigate. And then we tried to suppress, but once it had gone so wide, the attempt to lock all of the economy down means that I'm afraid there's a lot of businesses, actually Russ and Tyler Cowan did a, uh, a podcast on this, I think it was in April, maybe it was in even late March, where they talked about whether the economy might reopen. Russ was uncharacteristically optimistic, and Tyler was sort of characteristically pessimistic, that it's, it's difficult to restart things very quickly because you, you don't have, once a company has closed, then all the connections, all of the transactions costs that are what Ronald Coe said, the reasons why a firm are there to begin with, it's hard to put them back together. It, it's hard to put that egg back once the omelet has been made. So, the, the, the employment reports in the United States are maybe even a little better than they might have been because some of that matching problem was solved by people rehiring 
uh, some of their workers. But I, it seems to me that the United States has pretty much threaded the needle in exactly the wrong way. First, we failed to mitigate at all. And so no masks, no social distancing. And then by the time it became no clear it was a problem, we tried no, no testing. No, that was an interesting thing. Planet Money, that from that, that really conservative news source, National Public Radio, <laughs> does a side-by-side comparison where they say South Korea used the private sector. The United States, by insisting on using the CDC, which completely botched the testing from the outset, meant that the United States had no chance of contact tracing. We had no way of doing testing. And then by the time we tried to suppress, it was catastrophic. So the, 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 the U.S., by refusing to choose a strategy and, and using two different inept strategies, has made this far worse than it had to be. And it looks like now, in some states, we're actually going to repeat what happened in New York. Texas is at least on the path, or they're on the early stages of the path. But the city of Houston may very well replicate some of the experience of New York. So it's a pretty bad deal. Um, yeah, so Mike, Russ asked an interesting question, I think, while we were um, uh, preparing for this interview. Are there, is there a libertarian take on the pandemic? Are there libertarians in the pandemic? I think one of the things that has struck me is, you know, I like to think I'm pretty doctrinaire libertarian, but I've been actually quite pro-state action in the space of testing, um, uh, even in the space of economic intervention to keep the economy afloat if we're going Chris, to it's like this. I don't even... It's like I don't even know you, Chris. <laughs> but I mean, no, but let's let's talk about that. So I'm I, I I think the government has made a decision, right, to shut down the economy. Now it it made that decision. Part of it is pro, there are some private sector incentives there as well. But for the most part, it did that decision. Now it doesn't does it have a responsibility in your view to act in a sort of non-libertarian way to keep that economy afloat until it decides to remove the restrictions again? Or how do you think through that problem? Um, some people have, I have for, for the first month, I heard people say there are no libertarians in a pandemic. Hmm. And then within a week after that, it was, it switched and went the other way. There are only libertarians <laughs> in a pandemic. And the reason is that I need stuff, but I'm told that there's some regulation that keeps me from buying it. Well, we should just suspend that. Well, no, actually, we should never have that stupid regulation in the first place. And so you end up asking about a lot of the kinds of restrictions. So um, bars that they, they can't sell takeout drinks. And so the Raleigh City Council said, well, wow, that was dumb. We're going we're gonna to suspend that rule. Well, why weren't you allowed to do that in the first place? Um, people are having trouble working as contractors. They have to be full-time employees. They can't come back part-time. They can't work from home. So there's, there's, there's an amazing set of Jesuitical restrictions, little tiny lists of doctrine, which for some reason were really important that we have, which in the face of the pandemic, you look at and say, you know, it's actually hard to explain why we ever thought that was a good idea. So I would say that what we're seeing is a golden age for libertarian skepticism <laughs> about this long list of pointless regulations. Now, if what you're saying is we're not anarchists, and we think that there is some role for the state to provide for public goods and to work across large-scale jurisdictions to solve collective action problems, I never thought that was a bad idea. So if the state would stick to its knitting 
if the state would stick to the things it's supposed to be doing, rather than trying to act as a nanny in everybody's home and restaurant, then I, I, I wouldn't be a libertarian in the first place. The reason I'm a libertarian is I'm a directional libertarian. I want to get rid of the thousands of nonsensical, inexplicable little regulations that have been exposed in the pandemic as being pointless and costly. So um, <laughs> I, I agree wholeheartedly. And, why um, Chris, thank you for Chris, libertarian why you pause, Chris, why don't you pause for a minute and let the crowd the standing ovation. Let everybody sit down and stop clapping because I'm sure they're they're up on their feet. I, I mean, it's an interesting it's an interesting time. So to to shift topics just a tad, it's a really interesting time to have this um, uh, ideological dispute because we're in the middle of um, a great ideological realignment, as I see it. So we've got conservative nationalism on the right. We've got the woke revolution on the left. We've got cancel culture has come off the back of the pandemic, bizarrely. Um, uh, has this changed? I'll ask this to Russ first, actually. Russ, has this changed the way, or this, these ideological shifts, the pandemic, populism, so forth, has it changed the way you communicate the ideas of liberty? Is it, uh, John Stuart Mill said that, um, uh, the, the, you know, to have wrong ideas test uh, correct ideas is actually good for the correct ideas. Is it, have you had to find yourself re- stating or stating differently the ideas of freedom? Uh, I think the biggest challenge is most people don't care about them, right? I, I, I think we're in a time right now where the traditional left-right libertarian axes are dead. Um, you know, Mike and I are both, and you are, we're all trained as economists. You think about the bread and butter issues that, that we have been, that I've been passionate about at least over my lifetime, you know, I'm against the minimum wage. I think it hurts poor people. I'm in favor of free trade. I think it creates dynamism and opportunity for people to use their skills. Uh, I believe in open borders uh, to, to human beings to, to go to where they can most prosper. Uh, I like small government and low taxes, low tax rates and low tax revenue and low government spending. They're all three are important. Less regulation. Most of these issues, you know, Mike points out regulation. There are a lot of people anti-regulation. Yeah, well, that's for this corner, tragically, not writ large. Most of the issues that, that I've spent my life trying to convince people about, people are like, what? <laughs> they're, not, they're not interested in them. The things people are talking about are your sense of country, your sense of culture, your pride, your family, uh, these cultural and, and social issues are, are what people care about right now. And I think we're kind of irrelevant as economists. You know, it's like a lot of my friends uh, who are macroeconomists have interesting things to say about the debt. Really? Who cares? <laughs> Nobody cares. The United States just spends more money and doesn't collect any taxes for it. That's fine. So, you know, the traditional areas that I think have been the battleground for in America between, say, Democrats and Republicans – They've either disappeared or gotten flipped on their head. Um, like I said before, we're, we're arguing about masks. That's what we're arguing about. And I think there's um, really what's been unleashed in the land by, by the internet revolution is a, a sense of tribalism. And the, um, the size of government is not what people are going to fight over for a while. We'll come back to it. We always will. It's a perennial issue. But right now people are, are arguing about 
you know, their identity, whether it's on the left where they're talking about uh, identity politics or whether it's the right, their, their sense of national pride. These are the things that are that are, people are going to right now are f- literally fighting over. And they're not libertarian issues to me. I, I, I bet Michael has something more interesting to say. Yeah, Mike, I mean, so to, do you, A, do you share that pessimism? And, and B, do you see a way forward for either us as a movement or, or just, just the liberal community more generally? Well, I would say that it is going to require a certain nimbleness on the part of people who favor liberty, because as Russ suggested, what's actually changing is the the tactical cultural ground underneath us, the terrain of the debate itself is changing. So for much of my life in the liberty movement, it was more or less taken for granted that there's a certain kind of cooperative cosmopolitanism that the, the, the Washington consensus was that the advantage to free trade the advantages to free trade meant that the argument against protectionism was unilateral. So then, and what I mean by it, so the, the, the argument for free trade is unilateral in the sense that even if the United States just reduces its trade barriers to foreign products, it doesn't matter if other countries buy from us. If we just reduce our own trade barriers, we are in effect reducing a tax on our own consumers and expanding the extent of division of labor, which means that we can then devote our energies to producing something else. I have in the past three years realized that that argument doesn't address, and Rusk said this quite well, that doesn't address, that cosmopolitanism, that the fact that, yeah, China benefits from it, but we benefit too, so it's okay. We are now in a situation where it is more like war. Now, in a war, if you tell me that our attack on another nation is going to cause some American casualties, I'm going to say, well, that's okay because we're doing more damage to them. I would never say, you know, the argument against war is unilateral because if we're at war, we may suffer some casualties. Yes, the point is to impose more casualties abroad. And so Trump's trade policy is that has nothing to do with American consumers. It is about imposing harm on our trading partners in a way that reduces their power. Power is zero sum, economic cooperation is positive sum. And so a lot of the arguments that I'm used to making, and when I get home and look in the mirror and say, damn, don't you ever die, you won that argument. Maybe your opponent didn't think you won, but I'm sure I won that argument. I no longer think that because my opponent says, yeah, I don't care about any of that. What we need to do is reduce the power of China to reduce the power of the United States by using their influence. So what we have to do is weaken China. Sure, it weakens the United States, but so long as it weakens our trading partners more, that's fine because that's the way war works. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm just not set up to participate in that sort of debate. And so the, 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 the ground has shifted under my feet in a way that I think poses a lot of challenges. Obviously, it's opportunities, but we can't just go on spouting the same platitudes. We're going to have to think how to participate in this. And the old sides, the old alignments have broken up. So the, the, I, know, I, I share nothing with any Republican candidate that, that I can see that at the federal, state, or local level. I, I have no affinity with any of the Republican platform. 
And so it happens that I'm running right now as a libertarian here in North Carolina for the North Carolina General Assembly. Uh, it's interesting to look at the issues that people think are important. If you run as a candidate, as Russ said, that what do people actually care about? I'm having trouble finding things that I would normally talk about that voters care about. So nimble. The, the one, my, one, my one word answer is we're going to have to be nimble because we have generally been dogmatic cosmopolitanisms and cosmopolitans, and that has nothing to do with anything that anybody cares about. I didn't, I didn't realize you were running, sorry, in this election, are you? Um, oh, right. I am running for the North Carolina oh, General Assembly, well, District great. 34. I mean, oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, all of our viewers in District 34, if they can um, support Mike Munger for... Um, uh, for political office. I mean, so so in that sense, what I worry about this conversation, though, is um, are we just responding to the same thing that everybody else who's extremely online, extremely involved in the media responding to as well? Because it is certainly the case that there are people out in the community that don't read the New York Times, don't know about the Tom Cotton op-ed controversy, they don't know about conservative nationalism, they, they didn't follow the American Greatness Conference, they don't really pay as much attention to the statues, but they do care about things like tax rates. They do care about business formation and the capacity to start a new, new firm or get a job or those sorts of things that we have a bread and butter story to tell. And I wonder whether your experience as a political candidate could whether you've seen that or not. But the, the, the bread and butter story that we tend to tell is one that I found very difficult over and over again. In 2008, I was running for governor and I would talk to some potential voters. Well, they were voters. They were potential voters for me, but they were voters already. It just, I was probably not going to get them. And I would tell them that here are the principles, here's the bread and butter, here's the way that, we're, that growth happens, and here's the way that state economies prosper. And they go, uh-huh, uh-huh, that makes sense. But tell you what, if you're elected governor, what would you do for me? And I'm thinking, I would say, you know, I just explained to you for five <laughs> minutes why the people who say they're going to do something for you actually are not benefiting the economy. And uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, but what are you, still, what are you going to do for me? I'm a farmer. How are you going to help me? And so I think your point about the people who don't read the Washington Post and who aren't interested in foreign policy, that makes it even harder for us because that was always more difficult. Libertarians, I was the uh, keynote speaker at the Libertarian National Convention for the United States in 2008 in Denver, Colorado. And in the, the, I gave a, the, in the keynote speech, I said, what are we for? What positive optimistic vision of the future is it that libertarians can say, this is why you should entrust us with political leadership? Because we're just against everything. Over and over again, if, if, if I hear a sort of libertarian debate, they're just against everything. But I think our side can do a better job of giving a positive, optimistic vision about the, the, the future of the economy and the community and of the society. This is why you should want a libertarian world, or at least a more libertarian world. And I, we've done a bad job explaining that. We have a deserved reputation for just being against things. And being against a list of things is not going to get voters to, the, to go vote for you. Um, Russ, I know you've got a hard ad in just a few minutes, but what I, I do want to pose that question to you. What is it that the libertarian movement or the liberty movement in general 
stands for and what can it what can it tell the the, the wider population from here I think it stands for two things that we ought to emphasize even if we're in a time right now where it's not necessarily going to be the front of, front front of mind front and center thing that people want to want to talk about I think we stand for adulthood where the idea that people should take responsibility for their own lives. They should be able to raise their children the way that they think is best because they know their children better than a stranger and they know themselves better than a stranger knows them. And they, they should get out of the way and let us choose or make our own choices in ways that, that we see are, are appropriate for us. That's the first thing. So we stand for being an adult, treating adults like adults. Nobody wants to be treated like a child. We all have an urge to treat other people like children, uh, but we don't want to be treated like children ourselves. Uh, so I think that's a really important principle we ought to keep reminding people of. Uh, the second thing uh, I would say we stand for is human flourishing. We don't just care about the economy. We don't just care about how much money is in your social security pension fund or your private pension fund or whatever thing you want to use to keep track of your economic success. We care about human flourishing. It's not just about the economy. It's about mean, leading meaningful lives. And everyone should have the choice to pursue that as they see fit. They shouldn't be told that they have to do a certain set of things to make a lot of money. They shouldn't be told they have to go to college. You shouldn't be, be paying to have other people go to college on their nickel. Uh, all those things should be our private choices. Certainly there should be voluntary ways to help people who struggle to help themselves. Uh, I like to say that there's there's three ways we, we cooperate. We cooperate through the political process. I don't think that's very real cooperation, but you could call it that. We cooperate through the private sector, through the voluntary association of creating firms, hiring people, working for others, investing. But the third way we cooperate is through the nonprofit voluntary sector. And that people think, oh, it's business versus government. But there's a third way, which is called charity, philanthropy, civil society. So we sell, we sell adulthood. I said two things. I got four. Adulthood. And I'm just getting started. Adulthood, <laughs> and I do have a hard stop, but I got at least six more minutes. Adulthood, human flourishing, remembering the importance of civil society. And the fourth is power, centralized power is dangerous. And I, I learned this as much from Mike as anyone else. So I'm going to say this piece and then hand it off to him. The idea that somehow a, a, a person who has no skin in the game, who's not your friend, not does not love you, has no affection for you, is somehow going to do a better job arranging your affairs than you can arrange for yourself, is the road to serfdom. It's a horrible idea. And the idea that somehow they'll use expertise or they'll hire the right economists or they'll pick the best you know, health policy because they'll be motivated by what? They got to be motivated by something. And when you centralize that power, it gets corrupted. It leads to, to, to the corrosion of, of care. So that's our. That's our, So that's those are my four principles. <laughs> adulthood. Let's see if I can remember them. Adulthood, flourishing. What was the third one, you guys? Can't the remember. Was, the fourth was centralization. Fourth was decentralized. That is centralized, and the but third awesome. one was. But it was awesome. Something else. But we'll, we'll, you'll go back to the tape. The that's tape fine. Back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's late here in America. You guys right. broke up early, and the other side of the world. God bless you. Uh, but but here it's uh, you know we're Mike and I are both in our nth hour of zooming. We're 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 over zoomed. So so Mike, um, I'd like you to answer that question, but really. Uh, the topic that we haven't covered is the topic of your your books, your mo two most recent books, which is technological change and the way 
I'm genuinely really excited about the future. I think we as a movement can tell a story about an exciting technological future that, that brings new possibilities for liberty. But very quickly, because Russ does have this heart out, how do you think about the future? And give us an optimistic, give us something optimistic. That's really what I'm looking well, the, for. It, <laughs> it, it's, a perfect, it's a perfect segue in a way, because you could take the positive version of what Russ said. Um, the, so th this is my, my bumper sticker. Awesome. And it, so it says individual rights and personal responsibility. And I, I'm happy to send that bumper sticker to anyone once, and you don't have to put it on your car. So the, the taking personal responsibility is actually a positive, optimistic vision. I think the number one libertarian hero should be Alexis de Tocqueville. We have made a terrible mistake. We got suckered by the left into this false dichotomy between markets and the state. In fact, we should be in favor of anything voluntary. And if <laughs> that was the third thing, civil society. <laughs> civil society. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so that, that's why it was a perfect segue. I was gonna. I didn't want to give you credit, but that's why it was a perfect segue. Uh, anything voluntary, and in, in fact, Richard Cornell, the famous libertarian third way guy, talked about the independent sector. He thought that it would be the, the, the golden age for libertarians would be when we tr we stop trying to defend the very forward position, which is indefensible, about the perfection of markets. Now, I would say that the reason we need markets is not because markets are perfect. It's because the world is imperfect and we get information from prices. But we don't need to defend that at all. What we need to do is to defend anything voluntary. So voluntary private associations of the sort that Alexis de Tocqueville talked about, there's a huge group of people that are willing to work for that. And so in my most recent book about platforms, I recognize that we don't need to rent. This is something that Russ had sometimes uh, told me uh, that he objected to the idea we were going to rent and that everything was going to be based on the commodification of excess capacity, the way I argued in the earlier book, Tomorrow 3.0. So as with all my work, it was it partly I should just admit that Russ was a big influence. Platforms are any system that solve the problem of triangulation, transfer, and trust, the three main transactions costs that keep us from cooperating. And so an example is Wikipedia. Wikipedia is not a market, but Wikipedia is a genius way of getting people to cooperate. It's completely decentralized. But we, we know who's an expert in the area because a group of an interpretive community decides who gets to do these edits. You get credit for it. We, they also have a really easy system of changing bad edits. So suppose that Russ wants to change my Wikipedia page. He stays up all night and he puts a bunch of funny pictures. Defamatory stuff, anything really he wants, yeah. So that it, it, could, it would be really bad. And whoever it is that manages my page, and apparently they don't look at it very often, but whoever it is that manages my page, next time they look at it, they say, oh, this is trolling. And it's one button. You revert it. So Russ spent four hours working on my Wikipedia page to sabotage it, and it's one button to revert and get rid of all of that. So Wikipedia is a platform. It creates a setting where cooperation is possible, and it's information wants to be free. But there's two senses of free. One is libre, one is gratis. Making it gratis probably won't work. We need to pay with credit. But making it libre in the sense that it can go around the world in an instant 
in a way that's accessible to everyone. And it doesn't require markets. It's just a voluntary private association. That's what my new book about, and that's the future of libertarianism. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that, Mike. Thank you, Russ. Um, I, I think this has been a fantastic session. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to the uh, Friedman Conference, uh, Friedman 8. Thank you. Okay, that was a great interview there from Chris with Mike Munger and Russ Roberts. You're back with Scott Hargraves, the other co-host of the IPA's Looking Forward podcast. And uh, I am, amongst other things, editor of the IPA Review. If you're a member of the IPA, you will be receiving your IPA review in the mailbox very shortly. If you don't, it's because of Australia Post and the pandemic, but that's another story. Um, so if you want to receive that four times a year, the only way you can actually do that is to become a member of the IPA. We've got some special offers going on at the moment for 55 bucks, uh, a discount on the usual price. You'll get your membership and maybe maybe a few other little goodies as well. So contact our membership team or go to our website at ipa.org.au. But I'll leave it there. A big thank you to uh, Chris, our guests, of course. In the show notes, you'll find links to some of their great works, uh, including the Econ Talk podcast and Russ Roberts's uh, book, uh, which is How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, which I heartily recommend. Uh, and a big thank you also to Josh, as always, in the control room for putting this program together. We'll be back with more, our, what I might say is our regular Looking Forward episode next week. 